Now to our top story tonight. Chicago's opioid epidemic has risen to a deadly new peak. The Cook County Medical Examiner's Office just reported that a record 2,000 Cook County residents died of opioid-related overdoses last year. That number has consistently gone up every year. This whole opioid fentanyl debacle is just horrible. And that's not just an issue for us in the U.S. I mean, it's really a global issue. That little news clip came out of Chicago on August 9th, 2023. And before you think, oh, it's a Chicago issue, um, you know as well as I do, it's not just that city. It's all over the U.S. And even Canada is having their own sets of problems. Ottawa represents the height of Canadian political power. Hours. But you don't have to look far to find the depths of Canadian despair. See all the needles here. Perhaps we'll come across um, a victim that's overdosed back here and no one's even reported it. Sergeant Flanagan has been on the job for 20 years. The last few have been some of the hardest. This opioid issue isn't just in North America. Obviously, it's everywhere, and it it really is terrible. Overdose deaths involving opioids remain a leading cause of injury-related death in the U.S., and deaths involving synthetic opioids like fentanyl and stimulants are on the rise ever since the pandemic. Obviously, the pandemic isn't to blame. This thing has been around before that. But the pandemic didn't help matters and actually caused a spike in these numbers. Among pregnant and postpartum women between the ages of 35 and 44, the mortality rate tripled from 2018 to 2021. Guys, it tripled. This is terrible. Now, we've had some advances made on the opioid front both from a national perspective, like getting rid of the X waiver, which we're going to talk about here. And of course, medicine moves fast and data is on the move. Historically, in order to protect women, uh, pregnant patients from this opioid issue and chance of death, we would try to substitute illicit medication with something that's at least controlled. Now, I know there's some controversy on there that, oh my goodness, are we keeping women dependent because we've just switched one illegal drug for a legal medication like methadone uh, rather than gain them off it. I'm not getting into any of that. I want to stick with the science and the medicine part, all right? Now, historically, while it was methadone, of course, the timetable and the data has moved on to buprenorphine. And now there's new data that has just come out ahead of print in the middle of January 2024 in the Green Journal. Yeah, it hasn't even officially come out yet. This is a new systematic review that has looked on the safety of naltrexone, which is the mu, the opioid receptor antagonist. Historically, there was a lot of fear of using that in pregnancy because we were going to somehow precipitate active or acute withdrawal, and that was going to kick the the patient over into preterm birth. Now, this is nothing new. The systematic review, remember, is already taking data that's already been published in the past. And we've reported on this as well. Back when Towers did their publication on buprenorphine in a prospective study uh, that first came out ahead of print in 2019 and then officially came out in the Gray Journal in 2020 at the start of 2020. But we're going to cover this new systematic review again from the Green Journal that hasn't officially come out yet. This was just released ahead of print. And the title of this systematic review is Naltrexone Compared with Buprenorphine or Methadone in Pregnancy. The first author is Servali 
Alturu. Now, we're going to get to all of this data, and, and I want to talk about the chemistry here, the, the function, the pharmacology of naltrexone. So if you're getting ready to do your uh, ABOG boards, you know you're going to be asked about opioid use disorder. And it's not valid. It's not an escape clause to go, ah, that's not my patient population. Those are those other people's patients. Well, first off, uh, rude. No, this isn't some other people's problem. And it's not just a certain demographic. So we all have to get over. Oh, it's an inner city youth issue. Or it's those who with a criminal aspect. Uh, okay, sure, whatever, maybe. But you know who else it hits? School teachers, bankers, and healthcare professionals. So we've got to get our mind on this, guys. Opioids are very non-discriminatory. They don't care who it hits. And it's terrible. I've mentioned this in the past. I'm not giving any names, but there's a, a, a physician that I used to know who uh, this got a grip on him. And, and it was terrible. And he never recovered, lost the license. And guys, just terrible. So we all have to know the latest data on treating opioid use disorder in pregnancy. So we're going to talk about mood here, all right? Not mood, like... Hey, baby. How you doing? That's the other kind of mood, I guess, since we're getting ready for Valentine's. That was weird, right? (laughs) What the heck was that? No, mood, I guess it's... Some people say mod, but no, no, it's mood, M-O-U-D. Okay, now that's actually something for discussion. Is it mod or mood? I've always called it mood, but M-O-U-D, I guess, I guess it could be mod. It's like tomato, tomato. That stands for medications for opioid use disorder. Remember, there's three that are FDA approved, okay? Two are agonist therapies, and one is an antagonist, and that's the focus of this new systematic review. So we have methadone, we have buprenorphine, and then, of course, naltrexone. We're going to get into the science of all this pharmacology, and above all, the question is, is this safe, or are we going to kick babies into preterm birth uh, because it's some kind of withdrawal? Now, there's lots of stuff to cover. We're going to talk about the history of this a little bit as well. So let's get into it now. Let's talk about the new data of naltrexone in pregnancy. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. You know, like everything else in medicine, uh, things have a great intention and then and then they just go south. And and that's the entire story uh, of opioids. And so we we can't blame fentanyl and synthetic fentanyl uh, on this issue because this has been around for a long time. I'm talking like Civil War time, because back then, even during Civil War time, morphine was used to treat some of these uh, soldiers in the battlefield. And of course, even back then, they they became dependent and they had some addictions to this uh, for the years following the war. So yeah, I mean, this, this is nothing new. It can be traced back to the 1860s. And right off the bat, in case you're ever asked, this is how you look like a star if they ask you this on your oral boards, right? So don't stumble on this. What is the difference between an opioid and an opiate? Okay, so opioid, as in ending in O-I-D, opioid, or opiate, ending in A-T-E. Right? There, there is a difference, and I know they're used interchangeably, and so people got semantics. Well, 
No, I mean, you got to know what you're talking about, all right? First, the term opioid is an overarching bucket. It's a big umbrella that includes opiates. In its most traditional form, opiates means that it's derived from a natural source, like from the poppy plant. So that's opium, morphine, heroin. Those are considered opiates, okay? Now, an opioid is something that is either natural, synthetic, or partly synthetic, but both of them have their affinity for the same opioid receptor, all right? So very clearly, opiates are a subset of opioids, but not all opioids are opiates. So very easy, opiates are more of the natural type, while as opioids have to do with uh, or include synthetic and um, semi-synthetic, like fentanyl, Percocet, Vicodin, uh, Oxycodone, those are all opioids, all right? So opiate, more natural, opioids, synthetic or partially synthetic. We already know that pregnancy is is not immune, obviously, to opioid use disorder. This is why we're in this problem. And as we've already said in the intro, historically, it was all methadone, and then that moved over to buprenorphine. Both of those are types of agonist therapies. But now Trexone is the opposite. Now Trexone is a reversible antagonist, okay? So now Trexone is different than naloxone. So, so don't get those confused. Now Trexone, reversible antagonist, which has as its own set of indications, that is not the same thing as Narcan. Narcan is naloxone. Yes, both naloxone and naltrexone are both opioid blockers, but Narcan naloxone is fast acting and is meant to quickly kick off the opioid uh, medication from its receptor to try to revive somebody from an overdose. Okay, naltrexone, here's a clinical pearl, guys. Naltrexone won't do that. It doesn't work that fast. It's it's taken once daily or once monthly based on how you're getting it. Uh, and, and it's used as a maintenance therapy for somebody who wants to be off the drug. All right. So that's the first indication. The reason now Trexone has kind of been more on the wayside is because, well, you know, patients have to be committed for this. They have to want to, to be clean, all right, so methadone is you're substituting the illicit for an approved controlled medication, but they're still on an opioid. It's just methadone. And same thing with buprenorphine. However, for patients who are like, I'm done, I, this is it, I, I'm tired of this, then they can switch to naltrexone. So naloxone and naltrexone are both opioid blockers, but based on their mechanism of action, the, they, they have different indications, okay? Only naloxone, which is Narcan, is meant to reverse a, a an overdose. And here's the other clinical pearl. Now, Trexone is not just for opioids, all right? Now, Trexone is also approved for alcohol use disorder because it hits the same reward centers. So, now Trexone is good for alcoholism and opioid use disorder. Now, Trexone does bind to the opioid receptor, but it's reversible, and it doesn't elicit any kind of pharmacological response, so it doesn't give you a high, just the opposite. It competes with exogenous and possibly endogenous opioids. Now, remember, and I've covered this in the past, this is a whole other issue for pain control intrapartums. you got to know what patients are on. So when you ask, hey, are you on any medications, prescription, or otherwise, i got to know because... Uh, for example, if you are on an, uh, an, an opioid blocker, um, some of the medication I give you for pain may not work. It's going to take a while to kick that off. And the reverse is true. Listen, if you are on, an, if they are on an opioid agonist like 
uh, methadone or buprenorphine, and then you give them a an antagonist uh, or a partial uh, opioid antagonist like Stadol, because that's a mixed uh, opioid agonist and antagonist, you can quickly precipitate them into a withdrawal if they're very brittle. So you got to know what a patient is on for pain control intrapartum. And we've covered this in the past, and that's not the focus of this episode. All to say, it's, it's just not an issue. Antepartum, it really has intrapartum uh, implications as well. Of course, also has neonatal implications, we'll, we'll adu- we'll, which we're going to get into here in just a minute. Because if anytime that you get an opioid stimulant, an opioid agonist, there is, of course, the the chance for the child to have a withdrawal from that medication uh, after delivery, okay? Because it's like, oh, I'm getting a little bit of, of transplacental passage here. I'm good. I'm digging it. And then, of course, they're separated and boom, that level comes down. That's not the case with naltrexone because it's just the opposite. It's a blocker. Naltrexone has been used in individuals with opioid use disorders who wish to eliminate opioid use entirely. So remember that. They, they have to be, be committed and not desire uh, uh, to restart or to be back on it. So they have to have good social support, ideally. Also remember that uh, according to, to, the, to the books, according to uh, protocol, they've got to be off an opioid. They've got to have not used anything for at least seven, preferably 10 days, because when naltrexone is taken and it starts to get that steady state, boom, it's going to trigger an immediate withdrawal episode if opioids are still in the body, all right? So unlike methadone, buprenorphine, that's an agonist um, where you don't really have to know where they last uh, took something because it's just going to be a little additive to make sure they don't go too much additive where it becomes a respiratory depressant issue. But for naltrexone, 7 to 10 days is the, the, the traditional waiting period to start this so that they, they don't have some kind of crisis in withdrawal. Naltrexone decreases reactivity to drug-conditioned cues and decreases opioid cravings. And as we've already mentioned, it's it's nice because it's not only just for opioids, it also works for alcohol. So that's, that's a, a nice double hit in case there's an alcohol abuse issue as well. There's two main forms of this medication. It's either as an oral medication. It's like 50 milligrams and it has a half-life of about 13 hours. All right, everyone, this is a clinical pearl because this medication clears quickly from the maternal circulation, all right? It's got a rapid clearance after that half-life. Patients need to know, do not fall off a, a scheduled dose. Because remember that this also hits cravings. I mean, it's it's like a switch. It's amazing. Now, a lot of... of of addiction medicine will tell you that it's behavioral. Uh, it's the habit of that, literally, not the drug habit, but the, the actual act of doing it. That's a separate issue. But the physical part of it, the, the physical craving of this drug is shut off. It's like a little switch. So missed doses or missed time doses are a big deal. That's the take-home message. Because in that gap, a maternal relapse could happen as that craving, boom, gets kicked up a notch. Super fascinating, right? So they got to adhere to it. This is one of the issues with naltrexone as an oral medication. That's why there's the injectable form, which is Vivitrol, right? Vivitrol is the injectable version of this. And when it's taken as an injection, the half-life is two to three weeks. 
So, you know, pros and cons. It depends. It, it depends on what the patient uh, is desiring and and how committed they are. Now, earlier we mentioned that naltrexone is also used for alcohol use disorders, and it's that injectable form that's FDA approved for both opioid and alcohol use disorders. All right, so it's the injectable one for alcohol. Now, Trexone has been used extensively for alcohol dependence and has a great track record and also has a lot of safety record. Now, this is well proven, of course, historically in non-pregnant individuals, but the data has been accumulating for efficacy and safety in pregnancy as well. I think we covered this when this came out. This was actually out ahead of print in July of 2019, and then officially came out in print and circulation in January of 2020. So we just cleared four years ago. Guys, this is how long this has been out. This was the Gray Journal publication by Towers, all right? So Craig Towers et al. The title was Use of Naltrexone in Treating Opioid Use Disorder in Pregnancy. Not an RCT. There hasn't been an RCT on this. And here's why. There likely won't be one unless the patient population is super committed because super hard to uh, randomize a patient to, hey, here's an agonist versus a complete antagonist. And the only way that that's going to work is that you're 100% committed to be off the medication. You want to go clean. You want to you be off, okay? And so that what that's what would make randomization very difficult. You can randomize buprenorphine to methadone because they're in the same class. Y'all get that, right? They're agonist. But these are two different mindsets. They're like, look, I'm not ready to be off of it. I just want to maintain and be functional and, and do what's safer so I don't overdose. Okay, well, that's morphine. Uh, I'm sorry, morphine. That's a methadone or buprenorphine. However, if somebody says, I- I'm done, I-, I-, I need you to help me get this off and stay off and h- fix the cravings, okay? Well, then that's naltrexone. So to randomize somebody where they don't have a choice would be very difficult. Does that make sense? And as we'll get into in a minute, this new systematic review, they looked for RCTs and there was like zero because of that. Most are either retrospective or like the Towers paper, they are prospective. So back in 2019 or 2020, depends on which one you want to talk about, the EPUB or once it's officially out and in publication. Yeah, I mean, it worked. I mean, look, there was no maternal relapses. Um, there was no spontaneous abortions or stillbirth. There was no issues with neonatal abstinence syndrome. And it, it overall seemed to be tolerated very well. So the conclusion was, quote, this study data demonstrates that in pregnant women who choose to completely detoxify off opioid drugs during pregnancy, now Trexone, as a continued form of medication-assisted therapy, is a valuable option for some pregnant patients who experience opioid use disorder. They go on to say, The drug is well tolerated by both mother and fetus, and newborn infants do not experience symptoms of neonatal abstinence syndrome if naltrexone medication-assisted treatment is maintained up until delivery, end quote. And of course, they're not alone in this. Uh, There's been a series of reports from the University of Western Australia that has also shown very encouraging results. That was published by Hughes, H-U-L-S-E et al. And that was in the Australian and New Zealand Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology back in 2003. What's interesting about that 2003 publication is that they actually used a naltrexone implant. All right, podcast family, now that we've set the stage, now let's tackle this new systematic review, Naltrexone, compared with buprenorphine or methadone in pregnancy. Again, this came out 
just about two weeks ago in the Green Journal ahead of print, but hasn't officially been released yet. We're going to let you know what the highlights are of this when we come back. Yes, it's true. As of right now, ACOG does recommend an opioid agonist pharmacotherapy for these patients over something like a medically supervised withdrawal. All to say, methadone and buprenorphine are considered first line, but on the heels of those two comes naltrexone. And the reason why it was preferred over medically supervised withdrawal is, of course, because withdrawal sucks. And, you know, patients can decompensate, they can have a quick relapse, and there's this theoretical issue of, well, does that actually, because of the rising catecholamines, does that increase the risk of preterm birth, all right? However, in those patients who don't want to be on another uh, opioid agonist uh, or a substitute opioid, want to be off and, and, and are dedicated to do it, this has a role. It, it, it's perfectly okay as an option. Now, Trexone, remember, is a mu opioid receptor antagonist. And even though it comes in oral implant or injectable form, patients need to know that there's differences here, right? So the injectable lasts much longer. The pill, they can't miss a dose because it's very quickly cleared from the body. And of course, the implant is something that we don't have a lot of experience with here, but definitely is a thing. Here in the U.S., it's the extended-release injectable IM form of the medication that's approved for opioid use disorder. So these authors had an objective, super easy, let's just take a look systematically at what the data is for the two traditional medications, methadone and buprenorphine, but look to see how naltrexone compares to that. The primary OB outcome was gestational age at delivery, and the primary neonatal outcome was the proportion of neonates that were diagnosed with neonatal abstinence syndrome. Pretty straightforward, right? So they included all RCTs, prospective and retrospective cohort studies on the subject, but they excluded case reports, case series, or cost-effectiveness surveys, right? So they just wanted to take a look at the hard data. Well, unfortunately, there was no RCTs, and we discussed that already because that's kind of logistically kind of hard to do if you're giving somebody an opioid antagonist and they don't really want to be off of it. Overall, they started out with 340 abstracts, they screened 225, and then included 27 for full text reviews. And out of those 27, five. Yep. You see how much work this is? <laughs> so 340, you're like, hey, we got something ended up with five. These were cohort studies, and there was no RCTs identified, as we've said many times. So because of that, they're not level one evidence. They do have some issues. They all had some selection bias. Um, not all of them had information about risk factors for preterm birth. So th they've got some limitations, but you got to do what you got to do. And they came up with this was the best kind of design that they had, which was five studies. Now, what's kind of weird is that none of those studies actually reported on the timing of the initiation of the medication for opioid use disorder. Huh? That's kind of weird, right? There's like, hey, this patient was on this one, this one was on that one, but didn't really go into when they were started. So that's a big limitation. But nonetheless, the results were overall super reassuring. For the primary OB outcome, Four studies reported gestational age, and there was no mean differences detected in any of the studies between the naltrexone or the brupenafine or the methadone group. 
Thankfully, there was no difference in the rates of vaginal birth or preterm birth before 37 weeks. And for the secondary outcome on the child, thankfully, as you would expect, yeah, obviously much lower risk of neonatal abstinence syndrome, NAS, because they're not on an agonist therapy. That goes without saying. That's pretty easy to understand. So overall, it didn't increase preterm labor. Gestational ages were about the same. It was well tolerated. Mom and baby overall did well. So as the authors said in their discussion, quote, this systematic review found no RCTs that compared OB and neonatal outcomes among pregnant women with OUD who were taking naltrexone compared with buprenorphine or methadone. They continue in saying, quote, our systematic review suggests that naltrexone use in pregnancy is associated with similar OB outcomes for gestational age at delivery mode of delivery, and preterm birth compared with buprenorphine or methadone. Now, guys, here's a big clinical pearl. If you notice what I said all throughout this episode, this was a systematic review. But what's lacking from this? There's no meta-analysis. Now, it, it doesn't distract, to take away from it, it doesn't detract from the value of this. But um, you're like, well, why don't you just combine that and do a new analysis? Well, they address that also. Quote, the small number and high risk of biases in the included studies limit interpretability of meta-analysis results, end quote. In other words, hey, it's too small. There's a lot of uh, heterogeneity here. So to do a meta-analysis would kind of be poop because it, it just wouldn't work. So systematic review is what it is, even though, yeah, I wish there was enough data to do a meta-analysis. Podcast family, so what's the take-home message? Well, it may not be first line for a lot of patients because they've got to be super committed to go clean, okay? They want to be out. They want to go completely cold turkey and they want to be done with opioids. And that may not be for everybody. So methadone, buprenorphine, both of those are agonists. And this one, now Trexone, which is an antagonist, may be an option for those who are committed to be free of the condition. Now, here's the other catch. Nobody knows really what the minimum time to be off of an opioid is before they start this medication. Some say seven days, some say 10. Some reports say 14 days of opioid abstinence before initiation. And so that's one of the catches here, guys. Don't lose this. This is the last clinical pearl. Telling a patient who is trying to go day to day uh, battling this desire for an opioid, telling them to go 10 up to 14 days if you're being super conservative uh, with nothing. No medication, uh, no antagonist, just nothing. You got to wait is a, a nightmare. Okay, guys. So again, I told you big clinical pearl here. That's why this is like third line. I mean, buprenorphine, number one, methadone, number two, yeah, you, or you can flip them based on who you read. And then there's a gap and then comes naltrexone. But in those who are committed, those who are like, hey, I've been clean 10 days. You got to give me something now. Um, okay. I mean, if they're committed to do it, now Trexone, we now know based on the best evidence that we have so far, which in this study was five uh, cohort studies, seems to be uh, definitely an option without risk of, of adverse maternal or neonatal issues. Okay. Now, do we need a lot more data? For sure. But we'll take what we can because the opioid issue is just terrible. Guys, it's terrible. Uh, so we got to do something. All right. So let's wrap this up. Not first line, but definitely an option for those that are committed. They got to have a washout interval before they start this. And that could be the, the, the game changer. That could be the option killer for a lot of patients. Now that we're done, let's bring it home.
All right, podcast family, that brings us to a wrap. We have covered a new publication that has come out ahead of print just two weeks ago in the middle of January 2024. This is a new systematic review on the use of naltrexone in pregnancy. As always, we're thankful for you. We're glad you're part of our podcast community. We'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.